Let's once again turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. We've been looking in the past few weeks something of our state, of what it means to be dead in sin. The first week we looked into the fact that all of us, by nature, are dead in trespasses and in sins, and something of that would mean then what we begin to see there in verse 2. That in this state of being dead in sin didn't necessarily mean that we were dead to sin. Instead, we were actually very alive unto sin. That was our desire. That's where we walked in. And the places that we walked, he said, first of all, in verse 2, is that we walked according to the course of this world. In other words, our activity, the everything that moved us, that guided us, that the path that you and I walked down was all in accordance to the age and culture, time, whatever you want to call it, in which you and I lived in. But he goes further and says it's not only that, but also we walked according to the prince of the power of the air. That is, uh, we walked as Satan dictate. And this is one of those where, wow, I just don't believe that would take place because, you know, we don't see Satan. It's true, I can see the world making an influence on my life. That's found in verse 2. I mean, I can see that, I can touch that, I can understand that. But this thing about Satan, obviously, that's just a little bit too difficult to comprehend. But nonetheless, that is the teaching of Scripture. Just as the first part of verse 2 is true, so is the middle part of verse 2. We walked according to the prince of the power of the air. Now, this doesn't mean that the devil necessarily was standing beside you, taking your mind or your hands and guiding them. He, too, uses means. And one of the means that he uses, as we now see it, he said he's the prince and the power of the earth or the air. Also, of the scriptures, we know him to be the god of the world. So, he will use such instruments as the world, then, to affect us and to bring that conformity to His will rather than to the will of God. And then thirdly this morning, we want to see the last thing that Paul makes mention here in regards to our being spiritually dead at one time. It's found in verse 3. So that's our text today, verse 3. He says here, "...among whom also we all had our conversation in times past..." in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Again, he's writing to these Ephesian believers, these who are now Christians, these who are now not walking as he is speaking there in verse 2 and 3, those who are not dead in sins, but in reality alive unto God by the gospel of Christ, he says that they at one time, though, walked or had their conversation, verse 3, in the fulfilling of the desires of the flesh. So the third major thing in regards to being dead in sin and our being led about has to do with our own sinful selves. Our own sinful nature. Or wherever else you want to call it. I want you to notice, first of all, among he says here, among whom also we all had our conversation. Now, children, you understand the word conversation there. It's much broader than when we think of just someone speaking or a tone of speech. It has to do 
with the whole lifestyle or your behavior. So you could, you could literally say, among whom we all had our behavior in times past. We wouldn't be violent, doing violence to the Scripture at all other than explaining this is what this means. So our conversation, our behavior, our lifestyle, he says, is something we all had. Notice that. Among whom also we all had our conversation. He declares that this is true of all of us. Human depravity is not just located in just certain segments of our society. It's not, you know, the worst of criminals who are sinfully depraved, totally depraved, who have bad natures about them. But in reality, it's all of us. All classes, whether rich or poor, young or old, Americans or non-Americans, we were all dead in sins. And we all walked according to the course of this world, to the prince and power of the air, and then in verse 3, that we had our conversation or lifetime and passed in the lusts of our flesh. It's not just those whom we all may consider great sinners. You know, those murderers that are out there. Those car thieves. Those drug addicts. He says, all of us. We all are this way. Won't take the time. Well, let's do. Let's look at Romans three. I know we've looked at this a lot of times on Sunday evening, or in Wednesday evening, as the case may be, as we were studying through the book of Romans, chapter three. But Paul here is setting forth in this chapter, doing one of many things. But one of the most important thing here is trying to show us what we are really like. The idea that we really are sinners. That all of us fall short of the glory of God. That all of us are lawbreakers. Not just certain sects of society, but all of us. You know, as you look across and look at your neighbor, the person sitting in front of you, or the person sitting behind you, or beside, they are in the same boat as you are. We all were in the same boat. We were all lost. We were all sinful creatures. We all were brought into this world enjoying and loving sin. And we walked under its dominion. All of us. None of us here this morning can sit there and say, well, no, yeah, you know, that may be them, but that's certainly not me. And that may be the temptation of some of you here this morning. And let me assure you that it's a wrong thing to think. You, my friend, are a sinner. You were born in sin. God's law finds you in that state. And this isn't said to to make you look bad or to make you feel bad in that sense, but it's to show you and to declare unto you that as far as God is concerned, you are a sinner. You are wicked. You fulfill, as it were, the desires of your flesh. In an unsaved state. All of us. And in Romans chapter 3 and beginning in verse 9, Paul declares this is to be so of both the Jew and the Gentile. So that includes everybody. Everybody. The Jew and the non-Jew. 
the Jew and the Gentile. Those who had covenant favor with God and those who were strangers from the covenants of promise, the rest of the world. He declares we're all under sin. Look at verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they're all under sin. Now, he did that in chapter 2. So we won't go back there, but he's just stating something that he's already said. It goes to show you that preachers repeat themselves and it's okay. So he's already proved the point. He says we're all under sin. And then he goes to show, using the Scriptures, this is so. And he quotes uh, many times from the Psalms in this section here. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Now, does that mean there's one righteous then? Let's figure out how to understand the Scriptures here. When he says there are no, none righteous, no, not one, does he mean there that there may be somebody out there who's righteous by nature? No, of course not. He just says there's none, no, not one. He even explains his none there, in case you miss it. Because we're so often ready to miss single words in Scripture, aren't we? And so he explains it. There are none righteous. No. Not one. Then verse the next verse. As it is written... Or I just read that. Excuse me. Verse 11. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. Now, does anyone understand? Is there any who seek after God? Well, if we understand none of verse 10 to be no, not one, then the none of verse 11 also has to mean no, not one. Right? That's common understanding of words. Paul has defined them for us here. Is there anyone who understands by nature? Is there under sin? The answer, he says, is no. Verse 12, They're all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. And then here it is. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Now, is there any who does good? Well, you said, no, none. In fact, how, how, how many none are there? No, not one. That's how. That's it. None. None in the absolute sense of what he means here. So, are men by nature good? No, no, not one. Are men by nature righteous? No, not one. So, are any of us here this morning, whether saved or lost in the past or now, were any of us righteous? No. Were any of us good? No. No, not one of us. You see, friend, that's where the Bible puts us. Now, I'm sure if we were using our own mind and our own thinking, we would say, well, you know, I know so-and-so and they're not that bad. Or, look at me. I mean, I'm not that bad. But we're not to look at it from our viewpoint, are we? We're not to use our eyesight in this, but we're to use God's. Because in reality, it is God who is the judge. It is God's judgment that you and I will stand before someday. And it is God's law that every single one of us have broken. So we dare not use our perception or our standard in this. 
we must look at it from God's perspective. And how does God perceive us? According to Romans 3, verses 9 through 12, not a one of us are good. And not a one of us is righteous. His law has found us all guilty and under sin. And as verse 19 says, that the whole world may become guilty before Him. And that all mouths are stopped. In other words, we cannot respond back. But God, no, He says, no, your mouth is stopped. Yeah, but, no, it's stopped. Every mouth. Yes, but, God, no. But I know, no, you see. But, but, no, it's no. Every mouth is stopped. You see, that's not where man wants to get to, is it? That's not the box that man wants to be cornered in, is it? And that's certainly not the picture that we want of ourselves. But brethren, the first, the first, if I want to use the word steps here, and please don't misunderstand me in some Arminian sense, but the first steps of seeing the salvation of the Lord will come to this, that you must see yourself a sinner as God sees yourself as a sinner. There is none saved who doesn't know and have an understanding of the fact that they are sinners. And if you ever hope to have the grace of God put upon you, then He must show this to you even this morning. That you have sinned against Him, you've sinned against His law, that you are no good and you have no righteousness of your own. And until you see that, you have no hope. There's absolutely no hope for you. You say, well, is it something I can say? No, God has to reveal it. And I hope He's revealing it even to you this morning. That you're saying, you know, as much as He's saying all that bad stuff, and I don't really care about it, He has to, I have to admit, He's true. It's true. And I can put all the butts I can to God, but in reality, I know what that passage of Scripture that you just read has said. He has made it so plain this morning, there is none good. No, not one. And that none includes me here this morning. I hope God is showing you that. Well, what else is some of this bad about us this morning? Let's go back to chapter 2 again and let's go to verse 3. One of the things that controlled us, Christian, in our lost estate was the fact that we had our lifestyle, our behavior, and the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. So what does this mean? Well, the word lust, let's look at that. The word lust here describes a desire. I think most of us can understand that. When you lust after something, good or bad, sometimes the word doesn't necessarily mean evil, but in a sense, obviously it does. But in this sense, but the word basically means to have a desire, to a strong desire. And he says here that in times past, we did whatever we wanted to do. 
Whatever our desire was, that's what we wanted to do. Now, what does he mean by this? The lusts of our flesh. The desires of the flesh of the the mind. Well, it speaks that these are, whatever they are, they were the guides by which we were controlled by. They were the pattern of our lifestyle. If you were to describe yourself Christian, or as the Bible does here, what were you like before you were saved, whether it would be in a big measure or in a small measure, that's not the point. But in some degree, it would have been true of you, as it was true of me, that I walked, I had my conversation according to the lusts of my flesh and the desires that I had. So what does that speak of then? Well, it speaks of our evil and corrupt, and I'm going to use the word disposition, that is in every son of Adam. Why are we sinners? Now, I'm not going to get into theologically why we are. We can deal with that another time. If you come to Roman study, you'll see all of this. But we sin because we want to sin. That's all there is to it. So there is something about our want-tos, isn't it? Because if I want to sin, or want to sin, as you Yankees say, if you want to sin, then it's because there is something in you that somehow, some way, forces you or tantalizes you to sin. And this is what this is. It's this principle, this thing, if you want to call it, that is in you that you are born with. And Paul calls it here, the flesh. And when he uses the word flesh here, he doesn't mean the stuff sticking on our skeletal part. He's talking about a principle of evil. Now, it does use the word flesh in the Scripture. It can mean the skin of us or what's in that. That's not the point he's making here. This is some spiritual thing. This is something that's evil within us that we are born with, that we have, that is something that is flesh. It's called flesh. And in this flesh, there's nothing good. It is void of all holiness. It is void of all righteousness and all that is godly. Now, at first, this wasn't so. The Bible says that God created man upright. That is, He made him righteous. But as you know, in the good book of Genesis, we see that man fell. And when Adam fell, because of the way God worked it out, there's no need to argue about this, it's just the way it is. When, the way it's worked out, when Adam fell, we fell with him. And we fell in him. So you could say something like this. When he reached forth and took that fruit from Eve, it was our hand as well. And when he brought his hand back to his mouth and partook of that fruit that he was forbidden to do, you could say just as well that was our hand taking that fruit and putting it to our mouth. And we were judged guilty. According to Romans 5, his sin then became ours. But not only did we get it in that way, but there's also a sense in which we inherited it because we're related to Adam. He's our father and the first man. We also inherit it. Just like, I use a silly uh, analogy here. Uh, my children, a couple of them have brown eyes. Where did they get that from? They got that from their mother. They inherited that. 
you and I inherited Adam's sinful disposition. We inherited his sinful want-tos. And so we have it today. And again, whether you understand all that, that's not the point. The point is, you know you got it. And I have it. Have you never had an evil thought? Well, right there, you condemned yourself then. Because that's what it is. Look in Romans 8. And I'll show you by this. I don't mean, it can't mean necessarily your skin. In Romans 8, Paul talks about the idea that we are either in Christ or out of Christ. If we're in Christ, then we're justified and freed from all condemnation. We're out from under the rule of and the dominion of sin. But if we're not, he says we're in the flesh. We have a carnal mind and we're at enmity with God. Look in verse uh, 7. He says, Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, if he means here skin, that would include everybody, wouldn't it? Everyone. Because everybody's alive is in the flesh. They have their, there's no one walking around in disembodied spirit, uh, spirits, are they? Disembodied bodies. They, they are in flesh and blood. So he cannot mean here in any sense of the word, your skin. Talking about something spiritual here. Something figurative, but true. Your evil disposition. Your lost, ungodly estate. So then, they that are in, not in Christ, but in the flesh, cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So, verse 9 there proves conclusively that it's not talking about a skin problem, is he? He's talking about a spiritual problem. We, by nature, the thing that guided us, the thing that was part of our conversation was this thing called flesh. And it's known most of the time, and if you read theological writings or hear people talk, you've probably all heard the idea of called original sin. Most of you have heard that, right? That's what it means. That's just what we're talking about, original sin. Indwelling sin or corruption. Paul says, Now then I, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. And whatever this thing is, it's actually a part of us. You and I, before we were saved, we had it. I want you to notice there's some... Paul gives some very interesting names throughout his epistle in regards to this. I think they're synonymous. But one of the words he uses is the... or phrase, actually, the old man. When Paul talks about the old man, he's talking about this very thing that I'm talking about this morning. The idea of the, of the desires of the flesh. The flesh being that which gave me my marching orders. Paul says that you put off, this is something you did, concerning the former conversation, notice, the old man, which is corrupt according to 
the deceitful lusts. Sounds a whole lot like Ephesians chapter 2, doesn't it? Why? Because he's talking about the same thing. Notice what it's called there, the old man. The second, or another verse, is Romans 6, 6. Knowing this, that our old man, that flesh principle, is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. This is why Christians don't go on obeying the desires of the flesh any longer. Because that's been crucified. It's not been alleviated, but it's been crucified. It's dead, but just as we found out what dead means, doesn't mean there's no inactivity, does it? Second, he calls it another place, our members, Romans 7, 5. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. It caused us to sin. Thirdly, he calls it the body of the sins of the flesh in another place. Colossians 2.11 In whom also ye are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands and putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. He's saying there, and again, not to get too deep on this, when you were regenerated, when you were quickened unto life, you who were dead in trespasses and sin, hath he quickened, he says in chapter 2 of Ephesians, when you're quickened, he says, you put off that body of sin of the flesh. That principle, that thing, whatever it is, that makes you sin. Fourthly, it's called just plain old sin in the Bible. Sin. Now, in all of this, this is not really a very pretty description, is it? Not nice. The old man, our members, sinful. The body of the sins of the flesh. Those are not nice terms or thoughts in regards to... And that's the point. These are not nice things. It's an evil principle. It's an evil law disposition that is winning us. You'll notice that in some of these, some of the language in which Paul uses, and I quoted those a while ago, he calls this inward corruption after ourselves, doesn't he? The old man, our members, sins of the flesh. Why would he do that? Well, the reason is, is because that the whole man is involved in sinning. Our hearts, our minds, our members, eyes, things of that, feet, all of these things are very active in sinning. When my heart says lust, my eyes went to work. When the thief's heart said steal, his hand went to work. You see, it's the whole man that's involved in these things. Look in Romans 6. Again, verse 13. He says, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. In other words, this is what you once did. Now, don't do it again. What did you once do? You yield your members, your hands, your eyes, your feet, your mind to sin. Principle of sin said, hey, sin. You go, yes, sir, that's my king, I'll do it. King was the reigning in you, or sin was reigning as king within you. Verse 19, same kind of language. He says, I speak after the manner of men. He says, I want you to understand this, I'm talking like this. 
because of the infirmity of your flesh. For ye have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity. Even so now, though, he goes on to say, don't do that again. But yield them rather to righteousness. The eye, that hand, that foot, that head, that mind, at one time you yielded it to sin, but now he says you yield it to the principle of righteousness. Quit doing what you used to do and do what's right now with them. That's what salvation brings. But in all of this, though, I think it shows us something of the extent of the wickedness of our nature. It involves the whole being of man. All of man. Whatever you want to think of what man is, I assure you before God, as we were born in this world, it is sinful. Now, let's go back to chapter 2 again of Ephesians. And you'll note here, he says that we had our conversation in times past in that thing. That is the lust of the flesh, whatever we wanted. Well, what are those things? What are some works of the flesh? Let's get specific this morning and think about that. Well, a good description, and I'm not going to catalog all of them because I don't think the Bible itself in any one passage catalogs all the sins of the flesh. It takes the whole Word of God to do that. But go to the book of Galatians chapter 5, and here Paul does catalog some sins of the flesh, the works of the flesh, he says, in chapter 5 and verse 19. He calls them, he says, Now these are the works of the flesh, and he says they're manifest, which are these. What are some of them? Well, he says adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, illuminations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, just being jealous, he says. Murders, drunkenness, revelings, that means partying, and such like. Now again, he shows you there that that's not a complete list, doesn't he? And that last phrase, and such like, shows you that it's not complete. There are other things. There are other things that are contrary to the law of God, to truth and Scripture. There are such other things. But this is just a partial list. And perhaps you found yourself in some of those things. Then this is what you walk like. This is what you were like at one time, Christian. And those of you here this morning who are lost, that's how you still walk. No, not manifestly in the same degree, perhaps, as others. But in some measure, that's how you walk. Remember, there is none good. Oh, no, not even one, you see. Now let's look at another list. There's one found in chapter five or chapter three and verse five of the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter three and verse five. Here again, this is not a complete catalog or listing, but it just contains several. Mortify therefore. Now, the reason why we're to mortify is because of what he said in verses 1 through 4. This has to do with our being risen in Christ, 
our sitting at God's right hand and our affections are to be where He's at because Christ is our life and all of those reasons that come with the package of salvation, He says, then you do this. Because you are saved and you're in Christ, you are in union with Him, then you are to mortify the members which are upon the earth. What members are you to mortify? Did you know you had a member called fornication? Uncleanness? Inordinate affection? You know you had those kind of members? You thought, well, I just had fingers and toes and ears and noses. I didn't know I had those. Again, he's using figurative language, isn't he? And so what is our members that are like? He says, well, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, this inordinate desire after something, he calls idolatry. It's like setting a, a whatever stone before you and bowing down to it. He says, that's how you are when you lust after something that you have an inordinate affection for. For which things... Notice he doesn't say here that's all of them, but he says, for which things, though, the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience in the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. He's talking to them just as he was speaking to the Ephesians. This is what you were once like, he says. My friend, if you have not been risen with Christ this morning, you're still walking that way. You're still under these sins. Well, let's apply this this morning. We see where our, our time was spent as we were lost. Where did we spend it? Well, let me... We gave a list just a moment ago of some sins that certainly uh, we find in Scripture. And as I said, they were not cataloged to totally. But I want us to look at this in such a way that it would apply to some of us here this morning more particular. Remember we said in chapter 2 and verse 2 there that the word world had to do with not so much the universe in which you and I live in, but it's kind of like the age or the culture or the time or the generation in which you live. I want us to apply that kind of a principle now when it comes to the activity of our fulfilling the desires of the flesh. I don't know too many of us here who were literal murderers. Now, you may have murdered in your heart by being angry at your brother without a cause, but I'm not talking about you. None of us is probably here this morning taking a knife and plunged it in the heart of an innocent person. That is unjustifiable. Or shot someone or something like that. So, you see, that wouldn't apply, would it? You could, say, you could think, oh, well, I've never murdered anybody, so I must be pretty good. Well, no, there's no not one, actually. So let's apply it to where it may fit this morning. And there are several things that I think our age is very up and up on. If we were going to describe some sins of this age in which we live in, which we followed within ourselves, let me name a few this morning. In the good old U.S. of A., Topeka, Kansas. Okay? How about this sin? 
one of the things that drove us was probably pleasure and leisure. When you say that was a pretty good guide to your life, you live for pleasure. The Bible tells us, for instance, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, 3, 2, excuse me, no, chapter 3, excuse me, and verse 4, that there will be those who are traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than the lovers of God. And I would, if you were to examine your heart in light of this thing here, you would have to say, ah, he's got me. It's true. I either did or I live now for pleasure or leisure. I want my desires fulfilled and just doing fun things. I'm here to have fun. I'm here to do what pleases me. If it causes me a little gruff, I don't want to do it. Pleasure. Pleasure was the lust of your flesh. How about another one? How about sex? I'd say that's a pretty ruling principle in our day and time, wouldn't you? Sex is used to sell things on billboards, magazines, TV, movies. Sex. When I say sex, I mean sex outside of the marriage bed. Sex within the confines of, of the of the marriage is hunky-dory. It's fine. It's good. It's wholesome. It's biblical. But outside of marriage, it's wrong. It's sin. What do we have today? Pornography. Everywhere. Billboards, TV, Internet. It's everywhere, isn't it? And some of you may been have guided, or even now, this is your pleasure in life. That. Illicit sex. Infidelity in marriage. Boy, that's a common one nowadays, isn't it? That's the ruling passion in people. Have their wife and quote their fun too. Goes on every day, doesn't it? Say, oh, preacher, you shouldn't be talking about sex. There's children. The Bible's full of it. If the Bible can talk about it, certainly I can talk about it. Parents, it's just your responsibility to make it plain to your children. So don't get worried about that. That's biblical. Thirdly, oh, here's one. See this a lot too. How about gluttony? We see drink, food, and drugs. No one seems to be too concerned about that, do they? Lust of the flesh. What is it here in America? We have the most obese people in the world. Why is that? Lack of discipline. And the Bible calls it gluttony. It's the sins of the flesh. That might be your guiding principle. I don't know. Fourthly, materialism. Materialism, which means uh, having... I'm just going to use it this way. And I don't mean it in the theological sense that uh, there's a doctrine of what they call materialism, which in reality it does spill over because the objects then become God. It's coveting. But there's this sense, and when we want all, I mean, we want to get every toy we can get. 
Whatever my billfold allow me to have, that's what I want. Whatever the credit card allow me to get, that's what I'll get. And that's why you got debt up to here. National debt for that. Even the government doesn't even play it right. I mean, we've got debt on top of debt. Why is that? Because we're controlled by the desires of our flesh. And one of yours, perhaps, is materialism. Fifthly, not a whole lot of moderation in anything nowadays. Paul said, "Be moder- uh, show moderation in all things. I think someone has rewritten the Bible and said, don't show moderation in anything. What is that but desires of the flesh being carried out? Number six, how about consumed with self? This is a meism society, isn't it? It goes back to the pleasure thing and the leisure seeking. But the Bible tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3 again in verse 2, For men shall be lovers of their own selves. This is why you find so little self-sacrificing in churches today. It's more of a me thing. What can I get out of this? Not am I crucifying the desires of my flesh that I might help others, but what are others doing for me? Woe, woe is me. Pity me. No one else taking care of me. It's a form of lovers of self. Others want themselves served rather than serve others. And Jesus said that one of the, what another great mark and it's all part of that love thing. But one of the great marks of a true child of God is that they don't want to be served. They want to serve. Christ gives several parables in the Gospels to point that out. But how little is it done today? Another one is pride. We have an age that is stuck on pride. Proud to be this, proud to be that. This pride, that pride, doesn't matter, pride. Plaster it on their cars. Put it in their business. Put it on their t-shirts. They wear it, they think it, and they sell it. Pride. It's one of those lusts of the flesh. And boy, do we have it here in America. And it's seen not as a sin, as an evil, but it's seen in America as a virtue. Power of pride, you read today. Do you think God is pleased with that at all? One of the seven things, six things He hates, and one and seven are abomination unto Him, and one of them mentions is pride. It even can affect the look, because He talks about a haughty look. A proud look in Scripture. So proud would be another one. Eight, money. Didn't think I'd miss that one, did you? Money. The love of mammon. That's what money is, children, in Scripture. Mammon is money. Filthy lucre as far as the preachers are concerned in regards to it. But money is certainly a motivator. The love of money is the root of all evil. You want to find some evil? Money's behind it somewhere. Yeah, we got evil doers in the world. You can rest your 
bottom dollar on it that money's behind it somewhere because love of money is the root of all evil. The love of it. Catch that. The love of it. Not money in itself. Money answereth all things, the Scripture says, in a good sense. But it is the love of money that is the root of all evil. And then nine. I'd say this is pretty particular to Americans. Or uh, that too, but knowledge. Knowledge. So I thought knowledge is good. Yes. The right kind of knowledge. Wholesome knowledge. Humble knowledge. Knowledge puffleth up, the Scripture does say, though. But also the Scripture says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 7, ever learning and never be able to come to the knowledge of the truth. We have a society that is ever learning, but they have no grasp of biblical truth. They reject it. So those are maybe some sins of the flesh that we were once in. And now how by the grace of God delivered from. Well, what's another application? Well, and I think if you don't understand this principle of the flesh, and I'm going to say you have to have it all figured out in a theological sense, but you have to at least know it in some sense, you will never be able to do it, which is an absolute necessity in the life of a Christian. We still have the flesh so we must mortify the deeds of the flesh. That's what Romans 8 tells us. Now, let's go over there. So, if this is true, though we're Christians, though we have crucified the desires of the flesh and all those things, we've left that sort of stuff, we've left that realm, but nonetheless, there's still what we call theologically remaining corruption within us, and whether you want to call it, whatever you want to call that, we are still troubled with flesh, or there would be no there would be absolutely no need of this exhortation. Look in Romans 8, verse 13. And he just got through talking about what we were saying about you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Well, if that be so, verse 13 says, for if ye live after the flesh... Now, let me go back to verse 12. Therefore, because of the state that we're in as Christians, verse non-Christians, therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh... For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, and he's putting that in the same breath as the works of the flesh, isn't he? In context. For if ye live after the flesh, well, he says here it will happen. You'll die. And he doesn't mean physical death. But he means the second death. Hell. Hell. So if you don't stop living after this principle of wanting self taken care of, he says you're going to die the second death. But though, if you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, so you must have some effect there with your body and your deeds and the flesh. What's he say there? You shall live. So what's the exhortation? If this is all true then, then we must be about the duty of mortifying the deeds of the flesh or the deeds of the body. It is an absolute must. This is the only way, not only the only way that 
that this is a necessary thing, but it will also be the very thing that will convince you, one of the things that will convince you you are a child of God. Because look at the next verse, which, by the way, is in context with verse 13. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. Now, many people take verse 14 to mean some kind of a spooky, uh, super spiritual leading. You know, I felt led to go be a missionary. So, that's what they think verse 14 is talking about. And it is not. Verse 14 is talking about on the hills of mortifying the deeds of the body. How do we do it? Well, he tells us in verse 13, it is through the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit of God. As He now dwells in us, according to verse 9, it is by Him that you and I mortify the deeds of God. He gives us the power to say no to sin and to overcome it. And if that be so, verse 14, and as many are as led by that Spirit that moves in us to mortify the deeds of the body, what are they? They are the sons of God. In other words, only those who are constantly and consistently mortifying the deeds of the body, they are, and they are alone, the children of God. If you're not doing it, then you're not a son of God. That's what he means by that passage. So that's why I said it is an absolute need in the life of a Christian. Chapter 13, then, if that be so, Romans 13, then you better not make provisions for the flesh. Because that's what he says. He says in verse 13, let us walk honestly of chapter 13, as in the day, not in rioting, that means partying, and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying. You see, it's just not the party goers who go to hell. It's even those who strive and are envious. Verse 14. But, he says, don't do that. But, put you on the Lord Jesus Christ and do what? And make not provision for the flesh. You know what a provision is? Some of you, perhaps, who's in the military, understand a provision is something that you would you would get in order to feed yourself, to close yourself. Provisions in that way. It's it's things given to you in order to sustain yourself. That's what he means here. You don't want to do anything that is going to sustain the flesh. You don't want to put it in situations where it will get the upper hand. Notice the next clause. To do what? To fill the lusts thereof. The lusts of the flesh. Sounds a whole lot like Ephesians 2, verse 3, doesn't it? So what's our duty then? We better be mortifying sin. What's the great way of mortifying sin? Don't make provisions for the flesh. I'm going to use my old Nissan thing again. Those of you who know I drive a Nissan truck, I really don't have a problem with that, but I use it as an example. Let's just say I'm given over to lusting and coveting after brand new, well, wait a minute, not 19, 2000 and, uh, what is it, six Nissan pickups. Let's just say I, I eat, sleep, and drink wanting getting a new Nissan. Now, you can apply it to whatever you got. What would be the worst place that you would have find I would be at? What would be the dumbest place for me to be if I had that kind of craving 
for a nine, or a 2006 Nissan pickup uh, cab extended, nice red or perhaps a blue. Where would be the worst place for me to be? Sitting out there at 3030 Kansas Avenue at the Nissan dealership. Right? Wouldn't you agree? Because there I will be lusting. That's what he means here. That's the kind of thing he's talking about. Don't put yourself in the way of things that are going to cause you to lust and to fulfill the desires of it. So, it's an absolute must. And then secondly, we can rest assured as we just got through briefly mentioning that there are only, only those who do this are God's. This isn't what makes you a child of God. This is what declares to your conscience that you are a child of God. So let me ask you this morning. Are you a, are you a slayer of the works and deeds of the body today? Mortify means to kill. So is that what you do? Is that your business? One of your vocations? Your calling? Just as surely as you go to work and punch the old time clock 8 to 5, are you just as busy in killing sin and making not provisions of the flesh? If so, then you have the privilege of calling yourself a son of God. If not, you're a child of the devil. And you walk according to the prince and power of this air. say, well, I find myself as a child of the devil. There's no way, Pastor, this morning, as you've just explained to me about something of the doctrine of mortification, that is not what I do. I, if anything, I feed the flesh. What do I do? Your only hope is Christ, my friend. Your only hope is that Jesus Christ will take you just as He took Lazarus and call you forth out of your grave unto eternal life. You have no other hope than in Him. He's your only hope. What Christ has accomplished on the cross, what He is doing now in saving sinners is your only hope. And may God make that real in your heart today. I can't do it. Your mama and your daddy can't do it. Only God can do it. No soul ever resurrected itself. But Christ 